thankful for the way these stories hold on to the lifetime we won't get back. I know these rivers carry Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and today is that day, or that time of the month, where we team up with the Kankakee County Museum, and we uh, put out a monthly episode on something that we think uh, you should be aware of as far as local history goes. And I'm really excited about uh, today's topic, and uh, we'll, we'll tell you what that is in a minute. But first, I do want to introduce uh, Veronica Featherston, who is the executive director of the Kankakee County Museum. What are let's talk about the events that yeah. we have coming up, like we always do, because we got to let people know so they come out. And I know there's some really exciting things like ramping up for. The Gallery, Gallery of, trees. of Trees. Yes. Thank you, Jake. Um, we are indeed getting ready for Gallery of Trees. Um, the entire month of December, we are open um, every day except for Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and New Year's Eve. Um, so Monday through Friday, you can come 10 to 4 um, to see the beautiful trees that local organizations put together for your enjoyment. And on Saturday and Sunday, we're there 1 to 4. We do have a couple of special days Um where we're open a little bit later on Friday, December 17th. We're open until 7. We also are promoting an ugly sweater party, so please bring your ugly sweaters that day. And hot chocolate, right? And hot chocolate. See? Which, actually, new this year, we'll have hot chocolate available every day. What? So, yeah. Oh, man, that sounds so good. Yeah, we're you excited had me about at that. hot chocolate. We even um, have ordered some commemorative mugs to go along with our theme that you can purchase in the museum store. Perfect. So. And that's something we should probably touch on, too, is if you're looking for unique Christmas gifts, there's so many things in the, uh, the gift shop. There at, are. At the uh, Kankakee County Museum. So many uh, special uh, f- from all kinds of books mm-hmm. to um, the there's like the well, I guess there already is some coffee mugs in there. I don't know. There, we do have some mugs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I know we've mentioned uh, in earlier episodes like the Radicky Brewery yep. posters. Yep. Uh, what are some other things? Um, along with the Radicky Brewery, we do have some um what would you call those beer? Oh, uh, steins. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, coasters. Um, we also just recently started a like merchandise um, label, I guess, uh, for t-shirts. So um, you can promote your love for local history by wearing one of our new shirts. So. Sweet. Yeah. Um, so what else is coming up? Um, the only other thing coming up this December is on Saturday, December 18th at the French Heritage Museum. Um, we have the hot chocolate day there, too. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. Hot chocolate all around. There will not be a hot chocolate shortage this year. Nope. <laughs> and uh, so on on this uh, episode, uh, this is coming out on Native American Heritage Day. And this is something I've I've mentioned before on the podcast and when we were in the process of starting the podcast earlier this year that I would like to learn more about the uh, Native Americans that lived here before, obviously, the, the European descendants moved in. And uh, we're welcoming today to, to talk about that, uh, Adam Mitten. Um, it's Mitten, right? Or yeah. Mit- Mitten? I don't know how, you're, how you prefer to... I'm not really hearing much of a difference. Okay. <laughs> I guess there really isn't. Um, but Adam, you are from the uh, Kankakee River State Park. What exactly is your role at the, uh, the state park? My official title is the Conservation Education Representative, but functionally, I'm the site naturalist. 
which uh, is historically what my title is. Okay, cool. And then we're also welcomed by Kariah Manning, uh, well, who, sure. <laughs> <laughs> who happens to actually have uh, Native American blood running through her veins. So it is so wonderful to have you here. Yes, bonjour, bonjour. <laughs> uh, that's how you say hello in Ojibwe and Potawatomi, by the way. Okay. So I greet everyone. Hey, bonjour and welcome to this podcast. My name is Karaya Manning, Bagone Gijigokwe Nishnikaz Anishinaabe, aka Hole in the Sky Woman is my Anishinaabe name. And I, to put it simply, I'm just, I'm a local, oh, excuse me, sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> Sorry, I have a head cold. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but I am just, I'm a local indigenous for activist here who, you know, I advocate for Native American rights. I advocate for education on Native Americans and I educate people on indig indigenous peoples as well. So if you ever need like education on indig indigenous peoples, then I'm the person that you call. That's wonderful. And uh, I'm really glad that um, you're in our area to educate us on this because I feel like there's so many of us that just have no idea. There is a very much a very much ignorance around Native Americans in this area. I'll admit that right now. There's something I I've been thinking about in the last couple of years. I, I visited my brother in New York a couple of years ago, and and we were um, visiting one of the many islands that surrounds New York City. You know, New York City uh, proper. It's just full of all these little islands. And one of them we visited, um, there was a Native American tribe there. Um, I, I can't tell you which one. I don't remember offhand. But my brother was telling me, and I don't know if this is goes with all of native americans but he said don't call them native americans they prefer american indians so i don't know if that's more of the proper way to say it or i guess that's what i'm curious about is oh. if native american has become a improper way to well i myself actually don't mind when people call me a native american i actually prefer that term over american indian just because we're not from india yeah. Right. You know, where, yeah, because that's where that name comes from. Yeah, like so. if you're you know, if you're American Indian, you're an American that's in India. Yeah. But if, if you're a Native American, usually we'll say Native American, Indigenous, First Nations, all those terms. So usually usually you, I see a lot of Indigenous or you know, Indigenous or even shortened to just Indig, like I N D I G. As like a slang. Yeah. But. I, I feel like First Nation makes the most sense. Yeah. You know, because, well, you were here first, <laughs> right? So First Nation. Um, but uh, let's let's start with Adam. So how did you get into your role at the uh, Kankakee River State Park? How did you to how did you meet Veronica? Because Veronica messaged me because I told her I was like, can we do something on the history of Native American people that were here in Kankakee County? And she said, oh, I just met, I just made some new friends. And so where did you guys meet? I think I, re I reached out to the museum because I was looking for more information on a Smith Cemetery that's at the state park. Uh, and Veronica got involved in that conversation. Okay. And then she came out to the visitor center. And actually, when you said new friends, like <laughs> plural, did you mean Sprocket? I Were did you including Sprocket? sprocket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Sprocket. So Sprocket is in our presence right now. I, I neglected to uh, introduce him. You will not hear him, I don't think. I suppose he could make some noise, though. He chitters sometimes. He ch He's very non-vocal for a raccoon. Okay. Yeah, there's a raccoon in, in our uh, podcast space right now. Um, and apparently a poor guy... He's blind and he's deaf, um, but he's so cute, though. So yeah. cute. Um, I'm going to have to uh, take a picture of him later. But um, but yeah, so <laughs> I didn't realize that's hilarious that you said that. Yeah, he's a working man. He actually stays at the state park most of the time, and he's our ambassador animal. So if anybody wants to come see him, he's at the visitor center at the state park. And where exactly is the, the visitor center at the state park? Because there's so many different entrances into the state park. Yeah, it's at the what's considered the main entrance. So when you come into State Park, uh, 
I guess off of 102, there's like the North Loop parking area, and it's across the street from that. Uh, it's by the main park office building, and it just says visitor center on the on the building. So, okay. Um, it's near the Smoky Bear cutout, so that's probably a good indication for people who drive past it all. I'm the time. almost positive that's the entrance I always go in. It's the most popular one. So if you're yeah. gonna go down by like the suspension bridge where Rock Creek is, it's probably the one that you're gonna use. Yeah. Yeah, that would I would say so. And it's been closed down for many years, and we just opened it up when I started. Mm-hmm. And w- yeah, why was it closed down for so long? I think budget is probably the best answer for that. Uh, I think it's it's just a matter of just having somebody in there and hiring them and going through the bureaucratic process of actually hiring somebody and having the budget for that. So was there just some new money to funnel into the state park from the state or a grant of some kind that kind of... I want to say that they recognized that there was a need to educate people about wildlife and conservation, but the more practical answer is they were probably just really tired of people complaining about it. <laughs> well, I'm glad a bunch of people complained about it because it's it's something yeah. that's that's super important, you know, because I know another thing that in recent years, too, that's opened back up is the camping grounds, right? That Those were closed for a, a, a long, long time as well. Yeah, we have Potawatomi opened. Uh, it's It opened up at the end of last season, and uh, we've been trying to get Chippewa open for a while, uh, but we're we're being held up by that. It's not really our fault, but we're trying. So hopefully that'll be opened up by the end of, or beginning of next season. Okay. I didn't realize there was only the one open. I thought all of the campsites were open. Yeah, so not a lot of people know this, but we have four campgrounds at the Kinky River State Park. That's a lot. Yeah, so we have uh, the equestrian camping, which if you don't have a horse, you're probably not interested in that. But it's equestrian camping, so if you have a horse, then you're probably going to be more uh, drawn to that. Uh, we have group camping, which is Davis Creek. So if you're a part of a youth group or Cub Scouts or something like that, that's something that you can use. Um, and then we have Potawatomi and Chippewa. Okay, and, and Potawatomi is more for like... It's everything. I mean, it's tent camping and it's RV. Uh, it's the more secluded one, and it's the one that has the shower building in it. Ah. Uh, so it's probably the one that a lot of people experience more when they were growing up and probably have more of, like, the memories and nostalgia for. Uh, and Chippewa, I like to describe as kind of just like a wooded parking lot. It's very much like an RV park. I don't know why people are really into it, and I'm probably going to get a lot of criticism for that. <laughs> my, it just makes me think of my my neighbor right next door. He's got a camper, although I think they usually they they camp at one of the other like local camping sites in the area. You know, there's a yeah. People are ones. really angry that it's still shut down. The we, Chippewa we get, one, yeah. We get very angry voice messages all the time that it's shut down, and that's probably those are probably coming from people that do have the campers or the RVs, right? Right. And they can camp at Potawatomi. With their ve- right. their vehicle, their camping. It, they have the same amenities at Potawatomi as they do at Chippewa. Yeah. We just make sure, we got to make sure to let them know that. So hopefully they're <laughs> listening to this and be like, hey, just go to Potawatomi. You're, you know, you're all They covered. know that. They want something to come. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something. Um, you know, so, so getting into um, the, the Native American history of Kankakee County and specifically the state park because that was once what it what was it called Rockville yeah so Rockville was actually the uh settlement that was founded by um a white settler okay so um there was but there was uh there was two uh Potawatomi villages at the Kinky uh Kinky River State Park before it was Kinky River State Park um, and they're both Potawatomi, and they were both uh, led by Chief Shawanasi. Um, one of them was called the Little Rock Village, and the other one was called appropriately Rock Village. Okay, so that's where the the white settlers got their rock. And they called it Rockville, yeah, yeah. And Rock Creek is very rocky. There's there's a reason why it's called Rock <laughs> Creek. So <laughs> yeah, I think that's the reason why it, all these have rock names. Um, and now, actually, the land around Kankakee, uh, Kankakee. State Park had another name um, that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Actually, Karaya, you can probably pronounce it since you speak Potawatomi. T-Rock-Nock. T-Rock-Nock. Yeah, it means wonderful land home. 
I've never heard that word before. Maybe it doesn't mean wonderful land home. (laughs) My sources might be corrupted. (laughs) I maybe I I'll have to I'll have to look on the dictionary for that one just because I do not recognize that word. Well, because when I was researching this, I was thinking, you know, why would a group of Potawatomi people who probably either speak English as a second language or don't speak English at all name their settlement the Little Rock Village and call it something in English? So I figured there had to be like a native name for it, and yeah. so that's what I that's what I had found, and that's what I came up from uh, with from historical documents. Gotcha. So um, I I did not know. Obviously, I I knew about uh, Shawanasi, um, but I didn't know he was. So he was ahead of both of those tribes. Well, he was. Yeah. So he was. Uh, well, he was a Potawatomi leader, and th- and there was two communities of Potawatomi that lived on the Kinky River State Park. Uh, so yeah, he was, but he was, I think there was, there was pretty much a, uh, um, like kind of a grouping of Potawatomi people and he was kind of the head man of the entire grouping. And of course, you know, you've got Camp Shawanasi that's literally like just down the street, right? Right. Isn't it? Right. Yeah. Um, but did, so did he actually, do you know if he actually lived on the that grounds that is now Camp Shawanasi? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, in 1833, uh, there was a treaty signed called the Treaty of Tippecanoe. And anytime I want to talk about the Treaty of Tippecanoe, I like to add a disclaimer. Uh, there was over 500 treaties that the U.S. government signed with tribal leaders during this time period uh, that were not honored. And as far as we can tell, the Treaty of Tippecanoe uh, historically was probably, at least in some contexts, honored a little bit. I don't see any evidence that it wasn't. Uh, but I like to add a disclaimer, but that there were over there were over 500 that weren't. So I always like to add that. Uh, so, but the Treaty of T- Tippecanoe had a uh, a provision in it that gave Potawatomi leaders tracts of land that they can live for the rest of their life on their land without being removed. So his people was removed from the area, but he was allowed to live for the rest of his life on his land. Because he was, was up in, in years at that time, right? Yeah. And ironically, he had actually died before the rest of his people were removed. Uh, but he was allowed, if he had lived that long, he would have been allowed to live uh, for the rest of his life if he had lived into old age. I think your your point about the the five hundred uh, treaties probably matches up with the map I have hanging there in the corner. Um, if you look closely, um, and you're probably not going to see it from here, uh, you might have you know you, if you look at it later when we're done. But there are areas on that map, and I forget the 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 year of the map escapes me, but it's from the 1800s. Um, there are sections on that map that say Indian reservation. So I'm wondering if those previous treaties have something to do with where it says Indian reservation. Like they would say, okay, you can live in this spot here in you know, Rockville Township or whatever. Yeah, and th- this Kinky State Park area was considered a reservation at the time. Okay. And so that was an area that they were they were allowing basically the, the Native people to live. Uh, that's That, that language kind of makes me feel uncomfortable because that was their home. But mm-hmm. um, And just furthermore about the Treaty of T- Tippecanoe because they got seemingly a lot out of it. Uh, so what they did was the Potawatomi ceded all their land to the U.S. government, unfortunately, um, which makes me kind of think that maybe they were kind of coerced into signing this. But in exchange for that land, uh, they were given, one, a reservation along the R- Yellow River that was in, I believe, Iowa or Kansas. Um, and the government would build, build a mill there for them so that they have some source of income. Uh, along with that, they would receive an annual payment of uh, – $20,000 for 20 years, which seems like a lot of money for the day. Uh, in addition to that, they would get $100,000 in goods and then a lump sum payment of uh, $62,412 for debts that they had owed. Uh, and then, like I had mentioned already, they would get tracts of land for tribal leaders and not just uh, Shawanasi. Uh, this was for all Potawatomi leaders. 
so they can live for the remainder of their lives on the land that they had been living on for the for uh, previously for their lives. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I I like to think that this was honored, and I, as the historical documents that I found suggest that it was, but it's the U.S. government. Yeah, you know, so. it's hard to say because I and and this you know take this with what you will, but I also have heard, and I can't tell you exactly who I heard it from or where I read it, but that once they moved to Iowa. With, to the land that they were given, I have heard from some that they actually were made to move again. Yeah, they were made to move again. I'll say because, um, well, first you had the Treaty of Tippecanoe, which, you know, moved, displaced all the Potawatomi to you know, either Iowa or Kansas. But then later on, there was another movement where, you know, the Potawatomi and Sauk and Meskwaki of Iowa... And, you know, all the other tribes of Kansas, Nebraska, and all that, they were eventually pushed back to Oklahoma. So while you do have the Prairie Potawatomi in Iowa still, you have some Potawatomi that are still in Iowa who refused to move. There were a bunch of Potawatomi that were still pushed back to Indian Territory at the time or Oklahoma today. Yeah, it was called the Potawatomi Trail of Death. So it leads me to believe that maybe it wasn't as pleasant as history wants you to believe. It was not. Yeah, think think about the traveling conditions back then. Right. Uh, well, also, I have an account. I mean, like, so historically, there's – what I can find is that the treaty was honored. But even if they were given all these things, those are just monetary things. That's just material possessions. And I don't know how value – how much value the the Potawatomi, you know, found in those things. Um, and I have an account that I really hope that I wrote down. Uh, yeah, I did. Okay, so this was according to a man named H.S. Bloom, who's who lived in the area uh, at the time or a little bit after. And so he's talking about what someone else had told him about when the uh, when, Pot when the Potawatomi were removed from the area, and he gave this account of it. And I'm going to add another disclaimer here that he uses language that I wouldn't necessarily use, but, I mean, this is the 1800s and he's a white person. Uh, so I'm just going to quote it. He said, when Shao Nasi's band left the Rock Village, the scenes were heartrending. How the squaws cried aloud and rent their hair. How the men shed tears as they turned their backs for the last time on their beautiful home to which they should return no more forever. For no more beautiful spot could be found on earth than the rock village grove along the banks of the Kankakee before the hand of white man had marred its beauties. That doesn't really suggest that they wanted to leave. No, no, of course they didn't want right. to leave. So, I mean, it, it really, they were removed. I mean, let's not tiptoe around that. I mean, they were removed from the area. And no matter what kind of monetary reimbursement they were given by the government, even if they were given this monetary reimbursement, it, it was tragic for them. I mean, it was talking about grown men crying because they had to leave their home. And that that's tragic. That's a tragedy. And I should also stress the, you know, just the, the, such a tight bond we have with our land. Like, they're, like, in our language, there are literally words that translate to, you know, you know, losing one's land, being losing one's own feet, you know, being unable to walk and all that, because our land is what sustained us for thousands of years. And, you know, we, you know, for thousands, for thousands of years, this was our home. You know, I remember growing up and my godmother teaching me about all the different plants that, you know, are medicinal. She would take me to Perry Farm and, oh, excuse me. <laughs> she would take me to Perry Farm and she would point out all these different plants and how they were, you know, how this one was medicinal or how this one used to be food. And, you know, it's, you develop a connection with the land that most, you don't see the land how most people see it. You look outside and you just see, oh, there's green. Oh, there's a tree. Oh, there's, you know, grass and plants and flowers and all that. Yeah, the flowers are beautiful, but you don't really have, like, a full appreciation for the plants and for the trees. So when you, you know, you grow up and you learn that 
you know, this plant is your, you know, this plant is your brother. This plant is your sister. This plant is your kin. You know, these trees and all that. You develop a connection with the land that you, you, you're bound to get emotional over it because of how this land is your home. This is all you've known. And then to just uproot and just like that, uh, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's sad. It's heartbreaking. Let's get into more, uh, Karaya of, of your experience and your knowledge of actually being a part of the Potawatomi. So what's the background on, on your family? Are, I'm just, it's shocking, uh, to know that there actually is someone from the Potawatomi that was here is mm -hmm. still living here today, considering uh, we're talking about the, the Treaty of uh, Tippecanoe. Yeah. So how did your family end up staying here or did they move back to the area? How does... So I, I myself am adopted, so I do not know my biological family, although the culture was kind of ground into me by my godmother, who was Ojibwe. Although she wasn't Potawatomi, she okay. was just Ojibwe. But I grew up with her and my godfather, and she would often, you know, she would take me out and she would, you know, show me all the different plants, you know, show me, teach me about different animals, teach me the language. She would teach me all of that stuff. And I, ever since then, I just, ever since like the age of 16, I just took what I had and, and ran with it. I did a lot of, you know, independent research and now I'm, you know, I'm in school studying this stuff. Like I go to, I go to Governor's State right now and I'm currently studying anthropology. So I work a lot with like indigenous, you know, perspectives and things like that. So I just, I hit the ground, you know, after she, after my godmother died, I just hit the ground running after that. And I, you know, started picking up learning the language you know, I can speak some, I can speak some Potawatomi, I can speak Ojibwe, Anishinaabem, but, um, you know, there's still things that I'm still learning, though. So from your research, then, uh, what do you know about Potawatomi and, and the other tribes that were here in Kankakee County? So the Potawatomi, for the most part, we were... We kind of pushed, kind of shoved our way in when it came to, you know, com coming to this land at first. Because what happened was... When was that? Do you so, know? So, some, I want to say two or three thousand, even four thousand years ago. This is what the story entails. Legend has it that a woman had received a prophecy saying... That you have to go to the land where the wild rice grows and the land where the turtle islands are. You would find you would find several turtle-shaped islands throughout your journey. When you found that seventh island, then it was time to stop. So what we did, at the time we were on the East Coast. So we were in what is now like Nova Scotia, Canada, Maine you know, New England, Northeastern United States, New York, all that kind of stuff. And we made our journey down the St. Lawrence River into we stopped at what is now Niagara Falls. That was the first stop. There was a turtle-shaped island at Niagara Falls, and it's still there, actually. I, I looked it up on Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I saw, I was actually there uh, about a year ago, um, and I did see a lot of First Nation people there, actually, as well. So that was... Uh, that was neat to see. Yeah, we're, there's still a lot of First Nations people at, in Niagara Falls. Uh, still, you'll see a lot of Mohawk, you know, Haudenosaunee people there especially. But there's still like Ojibwe and Potawatomi there as well. Now, the second stop was Detroit, Michigan. Now, we crossed over from, uh, you know, Lake Erie and Lake um, Ontario. No, is it Lake Ontario, I believe? Into Detroit? Yeah. Um, Lake Erie and Lake I can't. I can't remember what lake. I mean, I can Google map that. <laughs> well, anyway, those two smaller Great Lakes there, we, um, we uh, stopped there. We crossed over those, and we stopped into Detroit. 
that was our second stop. Now, here's where you start to see the single tribe. I should mention this, the single tribe at the time. There were seven original clans. It's like uh, St. Clair is what's by Detroit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Lake St. Clair. That's in between the two lakes, isn't there? Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Well. (laughs) I'm just looking for the two great lakes that are in that area. Yeah, I think that's Oh, you're right. There's, um, well, it says... Yeah, you're there's so yeah, Lake Erie is under okay. Detroit and then like right next to Detroit, just east of it is Lake St. Clair. So yeah, yeah, Erie, and then Erie there's something is, there's another lake that's like above that cuz I think St. Clair is like in the middle of something and um, the two lakes. Yeah, then above uh, is Huron. Above oh, Detroit okay, is Lake yeah. Huron. Okay, that's so directly was, above Detroit. Okay, so it was Lake it was Lake Erie and Lake Huron. Okay. okay. Well, back to what I was saying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, I was just, no, you're good. You, you're good. You, you asked the geography question, so I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm a geography minor, but I wasn't as confident in that answer as I wanted to be. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't want to be wrong on a podcast. But you weren't, you weren't wrong. No, yeah. It's good to be as factual as possible. But anyway, so you, you, you the, uh, the Potawatomi get to the area of Detroit. Yeah. So I should I should also mention that before this time there were there were originally three tribes. There was the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. And they are known as the Niswimishkodewin or the Three Great Fires Council. But at the time, at this time, there was no Three Great Fires Council. There was just one tribe. But once the tribe got to Detroit, they started splitting. And this is where you see the Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi become separate tribes. And now the, I'll focus specifically on the Potawatomi because this is the story of the Kankakee. The Potawatomi actually kind of bridged uh, Michigan via rivers. They would they started following the uh, these rivers south into going into Indiana, and then they started following the rivers again going north into Illinois. And then other Potawatomi also followed along the coastline of Michigan. And all that, you know, you just dominated, dominated the land of Michigan. And that became Potawatomi, you know, Three Fires territory. And then, but the specific branch of Potawatomi that reached Kankakee reached, I believe, Benton, no, not Ann Ann Harbor, Michigan, I believe. That was the, that was the final major stopping point of the Potawatomi, the Southern Potawatomi before they started following rivers and eventually they followed the Kankakee River to where where the star flower grows or the Kankakee mallow if you're familiar with that because if you if you pay attention to how the Kankakee mallow grows you, you'll notice that there's a star in the middle and the Potawatomi settled the Kankakee specifically because of this little star flower so that is how the Potawatomi got to Kankakee, and we've been here for some thousand thousands of years. You know, we learned the land. The Creator taught us how to do Midawiwin ceremonies, or uh, you know, what exactly is that ceremony consists of? So I can't really go into detail about Midawiwin. It's a secret. Because, it's a yeah. oh, it's a secret. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I love secrets. <laughs> I'm like it's I myself am not even inducted yet, although possibly might soon be. So the Potawatomi, they, you said that they were here for thousands of years, but not Kankakee, right? They they no, just not, lived in yeah yeah they lived in the North America for thousands yeah, of years, but they didn't reach Kankakee until yeah rather kind of recently. Yeah, just kind of recently, but we pushed yeah. we pushed out like you so know. you're not exactly sure like about what year you arrived in actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the Kankakee River State Park or the Kankakee area goes, uh, it would have been actually right around the 1800s that they reached as far as far south as Kankakee. Really? That according to my so, research. That sounds so yeah. late, though. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was, you know, somewhere between maybe the 14 and 1600s. Yeah, so like originally this area in Kankakee was settled by the Illinois Indians and then later on the Miami people. Uh, and then the Potawatomi and Ojibwe made their way down here. Okay, gotcha. Yep, what and, happened to uh, did were the Illinois 
or the uh, is it the, the Illinois, Illinois and or? Miami actually both moved on. I don't know the mechanism by which they moved on, but they were okay. not here by the time Europeans made their way here. Okay. But the Potawatomi and the Ojibwe were, and it could have been because of the Potawatomi and Ojibwe, perhaps actually making war with them, or just maybe even being territorial or something like that. Okay. My theory actually, it might have been, we might have possibly merged together because I do know like a little bit of like Miami tradition. That's an interesting. Because that is, that does happen a lot with like, you know, tribes, you know, moving and flowing throughout North America is that, you know, some tribes will just, you know, accommodate other tribes into them. Like that's, that's what happened actually with the um, Mississauga, with the Ojibwe. So there used to be a tribe in Minnesota called the Mississauga. And, you know, what happened is that this this tribe used to be like an independent tribe. But as the Ojibwe started moving further into Minnesota, then they just kind of the Mississauga just kind of just got absorbed into them. And so there's a lot of Mississauga traditions that you see out in Minnesota, but the Mississauga tribe itself no longer exists. Hmm. So there's a chance that the Miami or the Illinois maybe got absorbed by Potawatomi is what you're saying? Or I don't think the entire Oh, not the entire but perhaps remnants of these people that stayed. Okay. Perhaps joined the Potawatomi and Ojibwe. Mm -hmm. Because there are still Miami and Illinois people that live in other parts of the world. Yeah. Right. That's uh I now I'm curious as to what the land of Kankakee was like when, you know, Miami and Illinois were here. You, you know, know I, uh, I've i actually seen aerial views of Kankakee just from the 50s and specifically of the Kankakee River State Park. And it was vastly different than what it is now just from going back to the 50s. Unrecognizable even. You know, and you, I just I can't imagine because this describing it here from people describing it as like the most beautiful land or just saying that no more beautiful spot could be found on earth than about Rock Village Grove. When was the last time you heard anybody describe King Key area as being that beautiful? Well, I mean, the state park is absolutely gorgeous. Oh, right. You know. Right. Um, I mean, I've always, I, I'm not named in those exact words, but I've always But described, if you were, if you were a, to rename Kankakee, not knowing what the word Kankakee means, nobody's going to name it a beautiful <laughs> land. That's not going to be the first thing that comes to my mind. No. So I mean, I can't. I can't even imagine what it would have looked like before Europeans settled it. That's and even true. in this account, people saying that Kankakee before the hand of white man marred its beauties. So I, I would love to see it. Even uh, accounts and surveys of an island that's at the Kankakee River State Park called Langham Island uh, describe it as being a savanna landscape. And it's definitely not like that anymore. There's overgrowth and trees and mostly uh, oak and, uh, for the most part, uh, honeysuckle has has grown into that. And it's just a completely different – and it's getting better because we're doing ecological restoration projects. But I can't imagine it being a savanna landscape. So it was just completely different prior to European settlement. And I, I just – I would love to see – what it looked like then. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we will one day. <laughs> you never, I mean, you never know, right? On how things change. Um, but uh, it's just fascinating to, to hear how all this went down. And I should also mention that I should also get rid of the whole, you know, virgin, virgin frontier idea because pristine wilderness doesn't yeah, exist pristine wilderness does not exist yeah because pristine it's been untouched in- wilderness is a myth uh there is no such thing as an unpeopled frontier or unpeopled wilderness and as a matter of fact the accounts of langham island being a savannah landscape was because of your people mm-hmm it was because of their burn techniques that kept that area pristine and in a condition that was a savanna. It was because of them. They were practicing conservation techniques prior to European settlements. And it was because of their disappearance that drastically changed the landscape there. But there's, a, there's an issue going on with the National Park Service and um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management where we're trying to figure out what what it is that is wilderness and what 
it means to be untouched by man, we're discovering that that doesn't exist. <laughs> because prior to Yosemite being Yosemite National Park, there were native people there. And yep. they were taking care of the landscape. They were they weren't just there doing their best not to touch anything. Mm-hmm. They were they were mimicking or I'm sorry, they were they were modifying the landscape in a way that was noticeable, in a way that was good for the landscape. And that's definitely something that you touched on, Karaya, about um, you know, everything being like your family. Yeah. You know, every uh like every living thing, whether it was a human or an animal or a plant. It was all... It's it's still meant to be taken care of, like, regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can have wild plants growing about in your yard and all that, but you still have to take care of them to an extent. So... Yeah, actually, and speaking of the Kinkakimalo, one of the reasons why it almost went extinct was because nobody was there to burn Langham Island, which is where its natural habitat is. It requires that. Mm-hmm. And actually... It it did almost go extinct, and there was nobody. I mean, it, when we whenever we cultivate cultivate this seed to try to uh, to try to make it grow, you have to abuse the seed, and we didn't know that for a really long time. And people were wondering, where's the kinkakimalo going, and why can't we why can't we grow it, and why can't it just be there naturally like something else could? But it's because it requires people to kind of abuse it and to burn the land, and it's because your people were doing it. Yeah. And we didn't know that. We had no idea that was what, what was happening. But I mean, or maybe we did, but we thought it was harmful for the land because we were ignorant of that fact. Was was the the mallow used uh, by the Potawatomi or any other tribes for any medicinal purpose? I would imagine they used it for something. That's what I'm imagining. They probably used it for something, although I'm not sure. I'd have to get a look at the actual plant and, you know— See, like, you know, what chemicals are inside of it and everything, how, what plants it's related to, all that kind of stuff. Because as of, ne- as of yet, I, have cur- I currently do not know of any uses for it. Yeah, I'm not aware of any medicinal purposes for a mallow. Okay. Uh, we know that deer like it. They uh, like okay. to eat it, so it's very tasty for deer. So they may have actually used it just to attract deer. And I then bet they it did. would have actually probably been good for their hunting grounds. Uh, but also another use perhaps is that the uh, the flower itself is actually a brilliant pink color. Mm-hmm. So it might have been used in for purposes of dyeing. Oh, that would make sense. Or decoration or something like yeah. that. Yeah, kind of like uh, how, well, you know, you buy someone flowers today, right? Or, you know. Or you use flowers to kind of extract the color and dye something. Yes, I mean, because uh, the Potawatomi people, uh, they value beads, mm-hmm. and I know that you can use a lot of natural uh, flowers and plants to to create dyes. Mm-hmm. So it could have been something that they created dyes, but we don't have any historical evidence of that. So okay. that that might not be the case. So please don't email me. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, right? There, you know, that we don't. That hasn't been con- confirmed by archaeologists. So please don't. <laughs> <laughs> not claiming to know everything. Well, what's the the day? What was the day to day life? Like for a Potawatomi, as far as just uh, you know, traditions or or uh, eating, um, sleeping, all that. Do you did you that... do any of those things? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just curious if if you have you know the information on like you know specifically even to like maybe Adam if you know like what some of the um, you, I guess you kind of mentioned some of the things like the the burning you know um, that happened. At you know, in in the area of the state park, just things like that. What was day to day life like for the Potawatomi tribe? Well, um, men would usually go often go out and they would hunt. You know, they would go out and hunt and you know, get you know hunt your deer or maybe even bison were in this area, I believe. Until yeah, yeah they were until a specific storm in eighteen twenty something. Uh, I found historical account that after that snowstorm, they they left the area because of lack of resources. Mm. Just something I found that I thought was interesting. That is interesting. So it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, w- I was like surprised. I'm like, wait, white people didn't ruin the right. Bison? That's that's what <laughs> I always this area. Well, that's no, what it was I like always, a natural phenomenon. Yeah, that's what I always assumed. I thought it was had something to do with not in this area. Apparently, it was because of a, a giant storm. 
uh, a snowstorm that came and just like wiped out resources. So the bisons are just like, yeah, never mind. We'll just like avoid this area from now on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, typically it was deer, elk, bison, but men would go out and hunt and women would stay back and they would gather, they would farm. Because oftentimes you would see, you would, we have like little subsistence style farms where we planted like, you know, peppers, well, not peppers, probably not peppers, but like, you know, pumpkins, squash, um, well, not really, probably not wild rice in this area because wild rice doesn't grow in Illinois, but pumpkins, squash, medicinal plants. Um, corn would be something, corn, right? Yeah, corn, beans. All of those kinds of plants. Could you grow tobacco in this area? Yeah, you can. Oh, yeah. Tobacco, tobacco, I believe, used to grow wild in this area because, I mean, sage grows wild in uh, at Perry Farm, and I often go there to harvest my sage. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't even know sage was a, a, a wild Oh, yeah. Here. It's, it's a wild plant, and it grows at Perry Farm specifically. Although I please encourage people not to harvest <laughs> in excess. Yeah, I actually believe that's unless you're uh, specifically uh, a tribal citizen, I yeah. think that that's illegal to do in an area that's protected, which Perry Farm is protected as a nature preserve. So yes. Yeah. You, you can't do that unless you're cry. <laughs> it's, an, it's an Illinois nature preserve, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's governed under the Department of Natural Resources, which is where I work. Yeah. Um. One thing I'm curious about is, do you know how how exactly did they farm or how did they hunt? And I'm sure, you know, like when they did hunt a deer, they probably used every single piece oh. of that deer. Mm-hmm. So what what did, uh, what are some of the details on that? So, like, typically men would, you know, it would do, like, you know, your typical worst, you know, your stu- your blitz style kind of hunting where you know everybody kind of splits off and you know into groups and you charge the herd at the same time and then just you single out a single deer everybody singles out a single deer and you hunt that specific deer specifically so that would be you just kind of targeted one specific animal charge the herd and get that specific animal chase it down or, you know, take it with take it down with bows or spears and all that. But, you know, you'd chase the animal down until the animal just couldn't move no more. And then you'd have your deer or your elk or your bison. And I'm sure there was a lot of fishing that yeah. took place oh, yeah. as well. I oh, mean. yeah. Fishing, of course. Fishing is very much rooted in the Ojibwe. Like, you'll often hear about Ojibwe sturgeon you know, roasted sturgeon or cooked sturgeon, trout, salmon, even. Would they would they use kind of like uh like sticks in the river to kind of create a trap? Yeah, we would. You know, we would we would take like fiber from um milkweed, and we would re- weave it into like netting, and you know, we'd make fishing nets from it, and. You know, then we'd take the—I forget what plant it was, but we would spray the specific plant. We would crush crush its seeds, and you'd take the seeds, and you'd kind of make, like, a little salve for it, and you would, you would spread the salve all over the fishing net, and it would help attract fish. Well, so, you don't want to give away your fishing secrets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, she's got to give us at least one secret since she can't give us the other secret, <laughs> you know. Um, and as far as— what did they what did they sleep in? What was their their homes? What did they make their homes out of? So, How did they stay warm in the winter? you know so oftentimes you would have we would have these slightly subsistent you know these slightly semi permanent homes called wigwams, and it consisted of two layers of birch bark and a willow structure and it was often what you'd often do is you'd often dig into the ground, dig a circle into the ground. And you would lay rocks around it, and then you would also build, like, you know, dig, like, a central circle into the ground, like a smaller circle for the fire. And you would then get, like, a pipe, dig, like, get some birch bark and make a pipe. So you would ha- you would put the pipe in, you would dig out some, dig out a line for the piping, and then you would put the pipe 
your birch bark pipe into the ground and then create a pipeway for the fire, the fire's, you know, smoke to exit outside. And then you'd also have two layers of birch bark uh, for walls. So that created a lot of insulation along with some rocks. You would have rocks on the ground that were often covered with cedar. So you would have like, you know, this cedar plant, you know, or aromatic plant inside your wigwam. So it smelled nice. And then you'd also have like the, how would I describe it? The floor is, the floor is covered in rocks and then you'd have the cedar on top of it. And so it was kind of, you would kind of dig it into the, so it was kind of dug into the ground in a way, but it was a semi-permanent, it was a semi-permanent home, just like, you know, just like, you know, our homes. Just like a cabin. Yeah. <clears throat> just like so a they cabin wouldn't, would be. they wouldn't take them down because they were nomadic, right? They were semi-nomadic, so they had summer yeah. homes mm-hmm. and winter homes, so they wouldn't take them down and, like, travel with them, right? No. But some pot, well, some Potawatomi, like, you have the Muscutans, the Prairie Potawatomi, who did use teepees made of, like, animal hides or birch bark even. So you have those people, but I'm more familiar with wigwams. As that's that's more of my thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there really was teepees used that much here in this area? You think it was um, mostly wigwams? It, my understanding probably, is that was more of a plains. Thing. Yeah, yeah, that would make that would was, make sense yeah. to me too, just because of the resources. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if teepees if teepees were used out here because I mean, it is it is more of a plains environment. Like but, Adam said. Yeah. But if you think of uh, also at this time, we have to keep in mind, you've got the, you know, the great Kankakee Marsh uh, that was inhabited in this area as well. I mean, it was a s- The swamp. Kankakee Everglades. The ever Yeah. I mean, it was obviously not like it is today. It was just it, it very, uh, I, I guess, not swampy, but Everglades is the right word, as you said. So. Yeah. And. The Potawatomi are actually very well known for birch bark canoes. So, if you ever, you know, want somebody who makes you know, makes birch bark canoes, then you'd have to hit up somebody that's Potawatomi because <laughs> <laughs> they're the ones that make the birch bark canoes. Yeah. As so. far as like agriculture, did they create like fields, or was it more of like a a gathering situation where they would kind of gather resources? As far as like foraging goes, I, yeah, I think it's more of a gathering situation because you know we didn't we were taught not to make these huge fields and you know steal you know destroy the land for the sake of you know yeah my understanding and trading. is that indigenous Americans didn't really cultivate the land as far as uh, tilling goes. And so they didn't that was work like a European. Yeah. It was more of a European. And well, I think I think uh, south in the south, like uh, Pueblo Indians and people in the desert uh, would do that because they they had to practice irrigation. Um, but here and in the in the east, it wasn't really done. And so because of that reason, Europeans didn't consider them to be people who the land belonged to, uh, because in their eyes. The land had to be cultivated in order for it to belong, belong to, you. to somebody. Because in like a feudal in like a feudal system, uh, like a, a lord would have had to have somebody cultivate the land and till the land for it to belong to him. If you're not doing that, then they don't really consider it to belong to you because you're not tilling the land. It's untilled. It's unworked. So it's it's wild and it's. Up for grabs, basically. And, yeah, that shows you the huge cultural difference Right, because it's like these people are, in fact, using the land. <laughs> They're just not kind of, you know, it's not their, earth meso- yeah. method of farming that right, you're practicing. It's, it's not their um, what they're familiar with. Right. You know? So I know that a lot of indigenous cultures, they would go in they would and they would forage the land. And a lot of it would be prairie in this area, prairie or marsh. And so they would they would— forage the area for berries and nuts and different edible uh, vegetation. And then they would go through towards the end of season and then cut fiber uh, for resources like building material, basketry, and that sort of thing. And then they would burn the area in order to rejuvenate it for the next year. And so that's why the, the land was – it was a cycle of renewal and rebirth. 
that the Potawatomi practice and the other indigenous cultures practice. And if it, if it wasn't for that that purpose, I mean, the prairie wouldn't be the prairie. It, it, rely, it relied on that. And other, other landscapes relied on that renewal process that the indigenous people were practicing. What – uh, you mentioned berries. What berries are are natively grown wild here, or used to be? Maybe not anymore. But do you know, Adam? Yeah. So actually, we have quite a few that you would actually be surprised about. I don't know all of them because it's not really my area of study. But right, uh, I know for a fact that uh, in Kraya, who is a person yeah. who uh, forages a lot, I know would probably be able to answer this better. But I know that we have like mulberries that grow everywhere. Oh, yeah. Mulberries. There's black raspberries, red raspberries. Um, I know blueberries grow wild here. And I believe wild strawberries used to grow wild here, although I haven't seen them. I'm not sure. I believe they've been documented here. I believe. No, no, not service berries. I haven't seen service berries here. Um, Solomon seal berries. They grow wild here. Um, yeah, we have those actually in our uh, wildlife garden. And the at the state park. Okay. So what else? Um, I believe that's all I can think of off the top of my head. And when it comes to nuts, the only thing I can think of is walnuts. But so we have black walnuts, and then there's also acorns. Oh right, which acorns, is something that you know pe- uh, the indigenous people knew how to ground in and make flowers with, and then make bread with. Uh, and then. Uh, mm. Hickory nuts. Like yeah, hickory those. nuts is also a huge yeah. thing. They're what do hickory nuts look like? Uh, so they, when they fall to the ground, they actually break up, and they look like slices of a larger sphere. Okay. So you might notice them, especially if you go to the state park. Okay. So I've probably uh, seen them in that. Yeah, really they look like green that. slices. Uh, I mean, they're they're little, and they look like they're they're part of a ball at one time, and they're mm-hmm. just little slices of things. Huh. Yeah, and they're and they're very good for the environment and wildlife love them. Okay. Yeah, it attracts the <laughs> Yeah, it attracts the everything. <laughs> yeah. Deer like them, squirrels, uh raccoons will eat them, but less frequently. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we could go on forever, I know. Is there anything else that you uh Kariah, that you want to point out about that you want to get across about uh the Potawatomi tribe or any of the other tribes native to Kankakee County. All I got to say is that we are still here. We are still here and there are plenty of us. I mean, we may not be common around in the Kankakee area, but there are plenty of us out there. Native Americans are not dead. We're no lo- we're still here. We're still alive. We still practice our cultures and everything. We're not dead. That's all I want to say. I was surprised to learn that Chicago is home to the third, uh, North America's third largest indigenous population. Mm -hmm. That really? Yeah. Yeah, I did not know that. The third largest urban native community is in Chicago. That's amazing. I never would have guessed that either. Well, actually, that's because of, there was, so what happened was during the 50s, there was, there were these laws enacted by the U.S. government. There were these series of these programs enacted by the U.S. government that basically for that basically encouraged natives to get off the reservation and you know assimilate into the dominant culture, you know, Western European culture. Well, the thing is, is that a lot of these natives often that you often travel to big urban cities like Chicago, for example, and you would often be set up with a job. You would be set up with a house or something like that, and you would be act. You would. It was the goal was to acclimate natives into society. A, yeah, society. But unfortunately, it did not work like they thought, and a lot of natives now are struggling. And a lot of natives were struggling. They became poor. They got addicted to drugs and alcohol and things and like that. And I'm sure that. They're, they're, uh, they were even struggling and probably still are struggling on oh, some reservations yeah. as well. Yeah. I've heard be, reservation living is even, it's not all, it's, uh, you know, bells and, and uh, you know. It's, it's, very, it's very heartbreaking, especially when you go out to the poorer reservations like Pine Ridge or the Navajo Nation and you see like people living in you know, houses made of crates and, you know, people with half, you know, living in cars and all that. 
it's heartbreaking. But unfortunately, it's still a thing, grim thing we have to deal with today. Yeah. That that's unfortunate. Is there anything uh, what can what can people do to help? So I my personal recommendation is to donate to indigenous communities. So donate directly to reservations or there's the Native American Rights Fund that helps with, you know, getting indigenous people into, you know, into schools and educate, you know, helping to educate Native Americans. There is um there is Midwest, there's the Midwest Soaring Foundation, which is a local organization, actually, based in Lockport, Illinois, and they focus on repatriation of Native American artifacts. We focus on protection of mounds, and we focus on education of, you know, educating the populace on Native American peoples. And I'm actually, I myself actually am a representative of the Midwest Soaring Foundation, so if you have questions, please... <laughs> Go to our Facebook page at Midwest Soaring Foundation. Well, Midwest Soaring Foundation. Or you just look up Midwest Soaring Foundation on yeah. Facebook and the page will oh, pop yeah. up. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. And then, Adam, how about you? How can, I mean, people can go see you at the, the Kankakee uh, State Park, Kankakee River State Park. Yeah. The best right? thing that people can do for the state park is just visiting, mm-hmm. you know, and just, I would say also for as far as just helping. Just be kind to the land and be kind to nature. That's the that's probably the best thing you can do just in general. Uh, but for the state park, we, a lot of our programs are not really funded by the government like it should be. Uh, like feeding Sprocket can get quite expensive and I'm not like paid to do that. Yeah. So we have like a donation box at the visitor center and we have – we don't have just Sprocket. We have quite a few animals. We have snakes uh, and other reptiles, box turtles. Uh, we have an ornate box turtle, which is an endangered species in Illinois. Uh, we have uh, a what ground... makes it a box? Does it look like a box? I'm, I don't know if I've ever seen a box turtle. I mean, I've it seen do, obviously it does not a... look like a box, like a cardboard okay. box. <laughs> no, uh, so they're called box turtles because they have hinges and are able to like close themselves completely in their shell. Oh, okay. Which is like different from a normal turtle because other turtles can't do that. They okay. just have like an opening. Uh, and that's why they're called box turtles. But uh, ornate box turtles are endangered in Illinois, so they're, it's it's like it's like a state uh, treasure for us to have one of those. Okay. Uh, this one's non-releasable, so he's staying with us in a similar Just situation. Just like Sprocket. Sprocket. Yeah. He's not blind, but uh, like Sprocket is, but he's you know he's a buddy for us at the state park visitor center. Uh, and then we have a ground squirrel named Pip, thirteen <laughs> uh, line ground squirrel. Uh, and then, you know, we have taxidermied speci- specimens. Uh, we have a lot of indigenous artifacts uh, and a lot of uh, other things that you can come out and do and activities that we do throughout the year. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, it's it's great to know getting the word out, the activity uh, or the right activity center. Is that what you call it? Or it's, is it? it's called the Visitor Center. The Visitor Center. I'm sorry. The Visitor Center at the Can- uh, Kankakee River State Park is uh, back open. So everyone should go check that out. Yep, it's open until January 1st. Okay. And then we'll be closed for like four months. Oh, really? Is that normal? Or, or uh, is that, that with the season thing, <laughs> right? That's when my term ends, so I won't be there to open it up. So I'm sure okay. if you ask nicely to the office person, they might let you in. But <laughs> So your term, so you, then you're... Yeah, so I'm not going to be there. I'm not there full time. I'm a temporary... I'm considered temporary. Uh, so my term ends January, uh, and I started late in the season. I'm not supposed to be here this late. It's supposed to be just like a summer position for six months, but I started late, so they gave me a full six month term. Okay, so you do you know if you're coming back? Or... Yeah, I'm gonna come back for a little bit. Uh, I plan on doing that right now, and then I'm going on to grad school. Hopefully. Okay. Are you from? Yes. Kankakee County. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good for you. Grad school, by the way, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm, what, I'm what are you going to, for? Uh, wildlife biology. Okay, that'll be cool. Right, and uh, maybe Sprocket can help. Yeah, you with Sprocket's that. coming with me. He's, he's my f- best friend and roommate. So he's coming with me to grad school. Hopefully, awesome. We're we're uh, you know lifelong friends. Cool, very cool. Well, Adam Minton and uh, Karaya Manning, thank you both so much for being here, and obviously Ver- Veronica Featherston, thank you for the the hookup here and uh, getting us all together. One last time, though, uh, Veronica, let's talk about the Kankakee County Museum. What are those things that are coming up or that you want people to know about with both the uh, French Heritage Museum and the, the main campus on 8th Avenue? 
All right. So again, um, the entire month of December, we have the Gallery of Trees going on at the main campus at 801 South 8th Avenue. And um, the special date for our ugly sweater party slash hot chocolate evening um, gallery at night is this Friday, December 17th from 3 to 7. And at the French Heritage Museum, we do have a holiday display on Saturdays from 1 to 4. And on Saturday, December 18th from 1 to 4, we have our hot chocolate day there. So and I encur- visit. <laughs> and, yeah, and I encourage everyone to, to visit the museum uh, and and make a, a donation if you can, too, online. I know if you go to KankakeeCountyMuseum.com, there's a, a link for you can donate directly. I think it's via PayPal, right? Yep, PayPal or yeah whatever avenue, um, mm-hmm. credit card. Yeah. <laughs> right. So please, please do that. Um, and you can find, uh, Kankakee County Museum on Facebook and Instagram as well. Yes. So thank Thanks. you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Kariah, for, for all your, uh, education on, uh, Native American, uh, culture here in Kankakee County. Oh, no, miigwech for having me here. Yeah. And I, one last thing though, how, so have you learned part of the Potawatomi language at school? Where did you pick up on that? Um, a lot of the Potawatomi language resources are online for me, although it was for Ojibwe. My godmother taught me basic words like, oh, wabu means rabbit, wishkeshi means deer and all that. But a lot, all, all of this res- all of this language acquisition has been online. Well, it's cool to know that like it's still alive on the internet, and you can actually oh yeah, a person can look it up and and try learning it themselves. Well, that uh, concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe or follow wherever it is that you get your podcasts: uh, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all of those. And while you're at it, if you are an Apple user. Please uh, leave us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Kankakee Podcast. If uh, you want to reach out to me about being on the show as well, uh, there is a a contact form that you can fill out at KankakeePodcast.com. And you can also sign up for our mailing list there as well. And our theme song is by Lupe Carroll. People tend to stick to